0: Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. You know, this book of Habakkuk, it may sound strange, but his book considers a strong number of questions that we commonly ask if you look at your card your message card by the way did anybody not receive one you came in you can raise your hand and one of the leaders will put one in your hand yeah awesome just a just a quick note too if you turn it around on the back we've put what's happening you can of course find this on our social media account our website but um, ladies by the way you see the third one down your final deposit is due next sunday all right and so the final deposit for the retreat coming up next weekend and there's still a few spots left but As you turn back over this message I'm going to preach to you today called Habakkuk, Life-Giving Hope. Here's one of the questions that, that we begin to ask that Habakkuk begins to address. Like, how am I going to make it through this season? You ever go through some season of your life where things seem to be falling apart? Things seem to be unraveling all around you. And yet things on the horizon don't look any better. Things in the future seem to not look any better. That's how it was for Habakkuk. Please understand, Habakkuk lived and prophesied around 600 B.C. It was a time where things were unraveling very, very fast in the southern kingdom of Israel. Let me explain something to you via this map. Israel had gone through a civil war. That civil war had separated Israel into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah, which we find Jerusalem, and most of what we call modern-day Israel. The northern part was the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Israel had a lot of series of really, really bad kings, and crack, in fact, very, very bad kings. In 722, the Assyrians, if you'll see up at the Assyrian Empire, came into the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. They put chains and picks through their noses, and they tied them together, and they took the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians, of course, would marry with Israelites and they would make Samaritans. That's why Jesus was not supposed to meet with the woman at the well in John 4. She was a half-breed, an intermixed, an interwoven marriage, so to speak. And the Assyrians took the northern kingdom into Assyrian captivity. Well, now the southern kingdom—about two hundred years has passed, and drought has devastated the land to the point that the fields produced little to no fruit, and their cattle had either starved to death or had been stolen. So Habakkuk describes the situation. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to keep it open because we're looking at the whole book today. Habakkuk three seventeen. Here's how he describes what was happening. He said, "The fig tree does not blossom. There's no fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fails. The fields yield no food. The flock is." Is cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls. Basically, that reads like a Hebrew country song. My wife left me, I lost my job, my truck broke down, and my dog died. This is what happened in the nation of Israel. This is what's happening in the southern kingdom. But the point was that the region of Judah was undergoing a starvation-level economic social collapse. The only way we can describe the southern kingdom is Europe after World War II. This is a dire situation. In addition to that, the Babylonians now presented a looming threat. The Assyrians have taken the northern kingdom. Now the Babylonians are coming to take the southern kingdom. They would invade the southern kingdom, destroy it, carry the survivors away captive. And Habakkuk says, God, how are we going to make it through this? How are we going to make it? Maybe you're in this room today and you're like me in this season. You're facing a bad medical diagnosis. Maybe you're in this room today and you're facing a crumbling marriage. Maybe you have a financial difficulty. Maybe a judge did you wrong over the custody of your children. Maybe a boyfriend of many years just broke up with you and you have no prospects for the future. Let me tell you, Habakkuk was written for you. Maybe you're in here and you don't know how to start over. You don't know how you're going to make it through this season. Habakkuk is for you, which leads us to the second question. God, where are you? Where are you, God? I thought you loved us. Listen to Habakkuk's opening statement of the book, chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear me? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you idly look at wrong? Wow! See if you can relate to that. You see that word idly? You see that adverb idly? Have you ever dared to admit to God that God is sitting idly watching you suffer? That He's sitting by idly while you're suffering and He doesn't seem to care? He doesn't seem to come in? He doesn't seem to come and share or come and deliver? Why do you idly look at me while I suffer? God, are you even there? Sometimes you feel like in life that you're in the middle of a really depressing TV series. You ever get into one of these shows where everything's going wrong? Everything's going horrible and you start to wonder how in the world can this storyline possibly end well, right? But you think surely the writers will find some creative way to pull this back together and in the end it all makes sense. But then you wonder, but what if it doesn't? I think the the show Lost permanently scarred me from confidence in good endings. I kept thinking one day they're going to pull this together and it's going to make sense. And finally after investing six years of my life, Into the TV show. And when the last episode ended, I was like, what? I feel more lost now than I did when I started. Was that the writer's intention? It wasn't the show? It was I was supposed to feel lost? Like it wasn't they were lost. I was lost, right? Like I was supposed to. I hate this show. And by the way, how can polar bears survive on a tropical island? I should have known something was off from the very beginning, right? But sometimes you wonder, is life going to turn around? Will life ever turn? As Shakespeare said, he said, a tale told by an idiot sound and fury signifying nothing. No happy ending. No redeeming purpose in all that's happened. No resolution. Resolution. There's nothing coming out of my pain. Which leads to the third question. God, how is this fair? How is this fair, God? Babylon, who was causing in Israel all these problems, was a much more wicked nation and godless nation than Israel. So Habakkuk says, God, how is it fair that we go through this? While Babylon gets off scot-free, everything they touch works out for them while we're being terrorized. How is this fair? I thought you were just God. Listen to how bold Habakkuk is with the Lord in chapter 1, verse 13. He said, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and you can't even look at wrong God, why do you look idly? Do you ever have the boldness to say God's been idle in your life? Well, Habakkuk does. He does it over and over. Idly. You're looking idly, God at traitors, and you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than himself? You ever feel like that? This person gets all scot-free, you experience hardship. These are three questions I would say every person in this room and every person streaming live has asked at some season and point in your life. Listen to me, the book of Habakkuk is unusual and that it is not a sermon written to the nation like every other prophet. Every other prophet is a sermon to the nation. This is a conversation between Habakkuk and God that Habakkuk later writes down. You say, Craig, why does that matter? Because in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk presents what I call a series of complaints. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he has this great moment with God. He says, but you know what? Now I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. And I'm going to station myself on the tower. And I'm going to look out to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaints. And God answers him finally. And Habakkuk argues back again. And God answers him again. And God flexes his muscles. And Habakkuk shuts up. But as he does, Habakkuk offers what I'm going to propose to you is one of the greatest statements of faith ever recorded in the Bible. It's at the end of the chapter, chapter 3. But you got to understand something. The shape of Habakkuk's book is supposed to teach us something. It's supposed to show us the internal growth of faith in our hearts and what that looks like how faith would grow over time. you got to understand, church, several portions of the Old Testament are like this. Rather than simply telling us what God says, what the Old Testament writers often do is they open up their hearts and let you learn from their faith struggles. They don't tell you always what God says. They let you have a first eyewitness account Of their faith and faithlessness. Several of the psalm writers are like this. We've looked at them. The book of Job is that way. What is Job? He's recounting his struggle for 40 plus chapters. One of the other minor prophets is this way too. His name's Jonah. Jonah is a story about one of the prophets struggling to live and love like God loves. He just gives you entrance into his life. And because of that, Habakkuk's book, can I just be honest with us is sometimes uncomfortably candid. He'll say some things in this book and you'll say, can you say those things to God? Are you allowed to say that to God? And you can learn a lesson right off the bat from that. You ready? God is okay with your struggles. God is okay with your struggles. And He's okay with your questions. He is. When Habakkuk questioned God, God didn't snap back with, How darest thou talkest to me, thou worm, Habakkuk? You know what Habakkuk you know what god does he welcomes Habakkuk's questions think about it God even saw fit to put this book in the Bible so you could learn from it and i could learn from it you ready doubt is one of the most common tools that God uses to drive you deeper into faith doubt is one of God's favorite tools to drive you deeper into faith look i've told you before church doubt is like a foot that's poised This is doubt. This is exactly what doubt looks like. You know why? Because doubt is like a foot poised to take a step. Now listen, that step can be forwards or that step can be backwards. One thing is certain, you will never go any direction until you pick your foot up. It is true. You can pick your foot up. And you can step backwards into despair and unbelief in your heart. You can back up into something that's worse than what you were before. But it's also true that you will never take a step forward until you come up against doubt. That you will never take a step forward in God's purpose until you get that foot poised. So what God does, my God, I'm preaching to myself this morning. What God does is he sends you into situations in your life like Habakkuk where you say, God, I don't understand this. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of dealing with this. I'm tired of going through this. I'm tired of battling this. I don't understand what in the world you're doing. And that's his tool to drive you deeper into faith. Listen, doubt is when the superficialities of your faith meet the reality of this world and no longer can you remain in your superficialities no longer can you remain in what you just knew about God in the past no longer can you remain in just an elementary understanding of God see it's not the questions that can't be answered it's that there are questions of your faith that your experience in God hasn't gone deep enough with God so God comes to your life the situations and he rattles you to get you to go deeper he rattles you to get you to understand that I am a God who wants your faith to go deeper deeper than you ever imagined. That faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. And so God will, will ask you to take a son, your only son Isaac, and take him to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. See, faith that hasn't been tested with doubt is shallow and it's fragile and it won't make it through every season of life. So what God will do is he wants to strengthen and he wants to grow it and he wants to build it and that's what you see happen with Habakkuk. Years ago, I read the story of Alan Gardner. He was, an, he was an Anglican missionary, and he was shipwrecked on a remote island off the coast of South America and route to start a new mission to an unreached people group in South America. He shipwrecked on an island, and, and Alan Gardner tried to stick it out and wait for somebody to come and rescue them, but no one came, and they finally died of starvation before he ever won one soul to Jesus. He died of starvation on an island. Several months later, when the rescuers finally find him, Alan Gardner, they discovered the body of Gardner with his personal journal underneath him. He had decayed. And his personal journal underneath him, the last thing he inscribed on it was Psalm 3410, those that seek the Lord lack no good thing. And underneath that verse was this final phrase that he wrote. He said, I've overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Most of us read that and we think, Goodness? How can he talk about the goodness of God at a time like this? Is that what you would have been thinking about? Goodness? Wouldn't you rather have been scared? Wouldn't you rather have been angry? Wouldn't you have been mad? God, why have you forsaken me? But he knew the secret that Habakkuk knew. And I want to share it with you. Because this is a secret. It's a power that will not only give you strength in those kinds of tragic moments, but it will literally infuse your life with a supernatural uh, strength in every moment. It's what we call the power of hope. It's what we call the power of hope. It's the most powerful force on the planet the power of hope there's a legendary experiment conducted at Johns Hopkins University I've told you before in which a researcher was trying to determine how long a rat could swim and they took the rats and they put them in water and if you just throw a rat in water that rat can swim about 10 minutes before he drowns 10 minutes and then he drowns but he found out that if you take out the rat for 5 seconds 3 times in the first minute so you lift it up 5 seconds, five, four, three, two, one, put it back in the water Lift it up. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Put it back in the water. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Put it back in the water. Do that three times within the first minute. And you put that back in and the rats could swim for more than 60 hours. Changing no factor except the introduction of hope gave the rats the ability to swim more than 100 times longer than without hope. That's the only factor that changed. Hope. My purpose is to give God's DP rats hope this weekend. So you can keep on swimming. So you can keep on moving forward. For those who you feel like God is nowhere to be found, for those who you feel like your situation is hopeless, for those who are angry or even worse, you're numb towards God, I want you to find hope. I'm not here to give you a pep talk on a Sunday morning. I'm here to give you real hope. I'm here to give you a Jesus who you can find real hope in. Anchored hope. So let's start with Habakkuk's complaint. Roman Numa number one, Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk's question is really an age-old problem. He had a major problem with God. The world often doesn't like, like to admit it, but we, when we really look at the world in times like this, it doesn't seem like a lot of times that the world's ruled by a good, all-wise, all-powerful God. Can we admit that? Philosophers call this the problem of evil. And they trace this question back to the all the way back to the 5th century BC Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Epicurus was his name, who basically said if God really is all powerful, he could stop all the evil. And if he was really all loving, he would want to stop it. So the fact that pain, suffering and injustice ran rampant on the earth means that either God is not all powerful or God is not good. The way I always talk about this when I talk to like non-believers, when I always try to communicate to them what they are trying to communicate with the problem of evil. Here's how I say it. If he's good, he would. If he could, he should. Since he doesn't, that means he isn't. Now I don't believe that. That's just what I do to phrase the problem of evil. If he could. He's, if he's good, he would. If he could, he should. Since he doesn't, he it. And that's an age-old problem, right? And we see... That Habakkuk frames it long before Epicurus does. Which always brings me comfort, by the way, that we're not asking new questions. Do you understand that people from the faith, of the faith, have been struggling with this forever? We have not philosophically in America stumbled upon something that's a blind spot in the Bible. Okay? We've not come across something that has been blind to the saints for centuries. So that's Habakkuk's complaint. Then, Then God gives an answer. You ready? And God's answer basically has four components. We see it in chapter 1, 5 through 11, and chapter 2, 2 through 20. He gives four components of his answer. Here's what it is. Let's read them. I'm just going to go through them. first one, verse 5. This is the first one. God says, Look among the nations, Habakkuk, and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing the work in your days that you would not believe if told. God said, I'm doing something absolutely amazing through these things. I got a bigger plan than you can realize in your hopelessness i got a bigger plan than you can understand in the invasion of the Babylonians, Habakkuk. I'm setting up a situation that will more clearly display the rescuing work of my son in about 700 years. It's beyond anything you can understand at this moment, Habakkuk. You don't understand to the point you wouldn't even believe it if I told you, but it will lead to my glory and it will lead to your ultimate salvation. You've got to trust me. Which leads me to the second thing. This is God's answer, verse 14 to chapter 2. For the earth, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The bigger thing I'm doing, Habakkuk, is I'm covering the earth with the knowledge of my glory. Listen, church, when you're suffering and your barns are, 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 are not full and your grain's not coming in, that may not seem like something better that God would cover the earth with the knowledge of His glory because you want your barns full and you want your grain to come forth. But I'm telling you, God says there's going to be a turn of events in your life, Habakkuk. It's going to lead to a lot more coming people coming into salvation than you can ever imagine. I know you're suffering for a little while. I know the nation is suffering for a little while. But my desire is that the nation would be covered with the glory of the Lord. Hallelujah. I'm preaching myself happy this morning. I feel faith filling my soul. The third part of his answer, chapter 2, verse 4. He said, the righteous shall live by faith. By his faith. If you are going to walk with me in the world, it's going to have to be by faith, Habakkuk. You better go ahead and graduate from that sight walk. Which means you must acknowledge, Craig, that there's a number of things you won't be able to fully see. And if you're a control maniac like me, and if you're a person that wants to understand everything that's going on in every season, then you might as well have go ahead and give up the idea of faith. Because we're walking by sight. And when we walk by sight, we don't have faith. But if we walk by faith, that means by nature we will not be able to see all things. We won't be able to see all things. We can't see them. Which leads me to the fourth thing. He says to the Lord, look how he quiets his soul. Some of y'all are going to get quieted today. The Lord gave him a picture That the Lord is in his holy temple let the earth keep silence before him. The last thing he does, that God responds to to the complaint. He just shows him a vision of himself sitting high on a throne above everything else. And he says, if I'm still on my throne, you can trust me with unanswered questions. If I'm still on the throne, you can trust me when you don't have all your questions answered. Listen to me. You can trust him even though you don't understand fully. You don't have to understand fully to obey fully. You don't have to understand completely to obey completely. You can obey completely with one word. You can obey completely with a lack of understanding. God says, I want to show you a vision of myself high and lift it up. Let me go philosophical for a minute. Can I go, can I go philosophical? Is it possible for a good God to allow something painful when he could stop it? A little scenario, a book I'm, book I'm reading right now presents this scenario. It's Greg Kugel's called The Story of Reality. He said, Imagine a commando in World War II. He's dropped behind enemy lines and he poses as a German officer so he can get into a concentration camp and set off a bomb that will destroy the gas chambers. He's not really a, 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 a Nazi, but he poses as a German officer. He says he goes in, and imagine that he mingles with the other officers and he sees a soldier, German soldier, preparing to execute a Jew prisoner. And this is an evil he could stop simply by shooting the soldier, but at what cost? He might save one person, but his mission is to save all of the people. He doesn't want to just save one individual from a gunshot wound. He wants to save all of them from a gas chamber. More lives would be lost in the long run if he prevents an individual death, but he but he does not stop the gas chamber from destroying thousands. So is it possible for a good person to allow something evil even though he can stop it? Yes. He might allow a lesser evil to prevent an even greater evil. Or how about this one? Whether or not you're an immunization family or not, that's not what I'm talking about. You can take your own stance. That's not what we're doing. But when my second daughter, Marley, turned one, we took her in for a round of shots. She was going to get her immunizations. Now that should require some kind of parent debriefing before one experiences child immunizations. Because as hard as for the child, it's way harder for the parents. You know what I'm saying? Totally unprepared. I think Meredith took Knox while I had to take her. The doctor asked me to hold my little girl on her lap and she stuck the needle in her arms and their legs four different times. And each time, their daughter lets out a scream that would have woken the dead. What was worse is how her eyes are frantically searching, looking around the room for help when she finds her daddy's eyes it was clear she expected me to do something to stop the cruel doctor but there I sat not only stopping the doctor I helped the doctor and I know she couldn't understand why I was helping the doctor at that moment the one who she thought loved her was not helping her she couldn't perceive that what I thought I was doing was what I was doing was not because of I didn't love her but because I did love her not in uh, spite of the fact that I loved her she only felt abandoned and betrayed my point is simply this is it possible for a good person To allow something painful to happen If they know something better Will come out of it Yes You know what that means then? It is possible that a lot of the pain That God allows you to go through on earth Might be like that too Just as those painful shots Might produce a healthier life in one child Might it be that your pain in one season of life Will yield a greater and happier eternity for you God says that in chapter 2 of Habakkuk You say, but I can't see any good coming out of this. I can't see. Craig, if I just saw the silver lining, I would be okay. Well, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it isn't happening. If I were to ask you in this room, is there an elephant in the DP Sanctuary in which you're sitting right now? You can answer with a reasonable amount of confidence that there is no elephant in this room. And if you can't see one, It's reasonable to conclude it's not here. But if I say, are there any lice in the building you are sitting in? You could take one quick look around and you say no. But just because you can't say one, that confidence would be unwarranted. Because the person right in front of you could have a whole head full of them. By the way, the next person to itch their head is going to look really, really suspicious. So just pause that. Suspend that for the next few minutes. The point is this. Listen. Understanding all of the purposes of an all-wise God might be more like locating fleas than spotting elephants. Trying to understand God's purposes is like flea searching, not elephant looking. And faith trusts God with that. Look at me, church. Look at me. Look at me. At any given point in your life, God is doing about 10,000 things And you are aware of about three of them. Okay? You're aware of three max. And faith trusts God with that. Is God on his throne? That's the fundamental question we have to answer. Which leads us to Habakkuk's great statements of faith, which I said is one of the greatest in the Bible. This is life-giving hope. Life-giving hope. He starts in, would you go to chapter 3 with me? Look in your text. I can't put them all on the screen. I want you to hit them. He starts recounting the exodus. Look at chapter 3 with me. He starts in chapter 3, verse 1. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. Did you notice what he did? He thought about God and thought about what God had done. He said, I'm going to think about you and think about what you've done. And in the next 15 verses, verse 1 through 15 of chapter 3, he's going to recount the exodus in poetic language, which is the Old Testament pictures of salvation. The Old Testament's greatest picture of salvation is the exodus. So what now Habakkuk's going to do is he's going to recount that in poetic language. Let's look at the poetic language. Look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light, rays flash from his hand. What's that a reference to? God appearing at Mount Sinai. Remember, he appeared, he gave the law. Look at verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plagues followed at his heel. What's that? The Reference to the ten plagues that he delivered them out of Egypt. Look at verse 10, chapter 3. The mountain saw you and ride. The raging waters swept on. The deep forth gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. What's he talking about? The splitting of the Red Sea. He's recounting the Exodus in poetic language. Look at verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the fast flash of your glitting spear. What's he talking about? He's referencing how the sun stood still when Joshua needed the sun to stand still so that he could destroy the Amalekites in one day. He's recounting the poetic language. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. You laid him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. What's he talking about? How the Exodus, God brought the nation of Egypt and the most powerful ruler, Pharaoh, to his knees in one night with the death of his son. And that meditation is going to remind him of, of several things. I put them in one statement on your card, but there are three things. Here's the first thing. Number one, it's very important, but very hard to grasp. And that is that we are not innocent people suffering. We are not innocent people suffering. In Exodus, God was delivering his people from slavery and their captivity was a picture of self-imposed slavery. God didn't create us to suffer, church. But we as a race put that on ourselves by rejecting God and it's a rebellion that everyone in here has participated in. Now let me be very, very clear here. Let me be very, very clear here. I'm not saying that the particular bad things in your life right now are happening directly because you sinned. I'm just, As if God's paying you back for what you did when you were a teenager. I'm saying that suffering in general exists in the world because the human race sinned. A rebellion in which we all participated in. Which means none of us, when we're suffering, then can point our finger at God and say, I don't deserve any of this. Because... Our sin warranted eternal death. So the fact that you woke up this morning and you experienced sunshine on your face and you experienced breath in your lungs is a bestowal of the mercy of God. Can I tell you one of the most P- politically incorrect statements Jesus ever made? This is jarring, y'all. We think, we think some other people's words are hard. Listen to Jesus' words. Remember in Luke 13? You remember in Luke 13 where something happened in Israel where a tower fell on 18 Jews? Remember the 18 Jews that died and the disciples come over to Jesus and what do they say? They say, Jesus, this is politically incorrect. They say, Jesus, were these 18 men more evil than the rest of the Israelites? And you know what Jesus said? It's jarring. He said, no. But I tell you the truth. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words... The question is not, why did the tower fall on these 18 people? The question is, why didn't the tower fall on you? We come to God saying, why are bad things happening to good people? And God says, you sinned. The question isn't, why are bad things happening to good people? It's, why are good things still happening to bad people? Why is anything good happening in your life when you're a sinful race? That's jarring. That's jarring. Jesus said, you will do the same if you don't repent, if you don't turn. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite preachers, he he was asked, he said, why do bad things happen to good people? He said, well, when I meet a good people, I'll let you know. I've never met one. Second thing that Habakkuk's meditation does on the Exodus, it does for him. Look at it, it's in your second statement. It reminds him that God is not short on power. Everybody say power. God manipulated the most powerful nation at will. He controlled the sun, the moon, the stars. He split the oceans. He's not limited by anything. Thirdly, he's not giving up on us. He's not given up on us, Esther. He delivered his people for a purpose, and he's not going to let that purpose die. Oh, God, when I've been in tough seasons mentally, I've had to say, Lord, I've got to go back to the purpose of which you saved me. I've got to go back to the purpose of which you gave me. And you will not let that purpose die because you're a jealous God. This is not my ministry to fulfill for you. This is your ministry to fulfill in me. And so, God, you're jealous for it. You're committed to it. You won't let it die. I will live and declare the works of God that, Lord, you are faithful. You're not going to let your purpose die. So after meditating on those things, Habakkuk says, verse 16, look, I hear And my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. And my legs tremble beneath me. Oh, you better hear this, preacher. Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed, so he doesn't feel awesome. I'm not saying you're going to feel awesome when life-giving hope impinges on your soul. He still doesn't feel awesome. He's still his rottenness. He, he's quivering. Body trembles. It's the Hebrew bowels. His stomach was upset. He had he had an IBSD issue going on. He, he had some major issues going on. His lips are quivering. You know what he's doing? He's crying. He's welling. He's consumed by grief. Depression has consumed him. He is rottenness. He dreads the coming trouble. He dreads the invasion. He dreads the deprivation. He dreads the health. Or for you, maybe it's the sickness. Maybe for you, it's the dissolving family. Maybe for you, it's the financial hardship. Maybe for you it's growing older and the things that come with growing older, the fear that comes with growing older, but here is the resolve. Look what he says in verse 16. This is the statement of faith that I think is is unparalleled in scripture. He said, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. That word quietly wait means deep peace and repose. He's choosing to adopt a posture of quiet repose. I'm waiting on you. And then says, says in verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Follow me up there. The produce of the olive fell. The fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread upon high places. That, friends, is the faith that God called for in chapter 2 when he said the righteous will live by faith. And that righteousness is characterized by one word. It's called hope. Hope. Can I give you a few things that we can learn about hope from Habakkuk? Number one, hope can exist alongside grief. Yes, you can. Hope can come right up next to grief and be right next to it, standing right next to it looking at you in the face. Hope can stand next to grief. You say, Craig, how do you know that? That's what happens. Like I showed you, his feelings doesn't change. He's still eating up with grief. You listen to me. Listen to this preacher. Listen to this preacher because this is, this is damning people's souls in our Western churches. There's a real danger when we talk about these things of implying that faith is some kind of upper-lipped, stiff stoicism or being filled with sorrow is a lack of faith in the Bible. That is not what the Bible says. When you're filled with despair and sorrow, that is not sinful. That is not sinful. You say, Craig, how do you know that? Look at the scripture. Job chapter 1 says when he heard the terrible things of his life about his business and his family, he arose, tore his garments, fell on the ground, and he wailed. And in all of this, the Bible says he sinned not. You can wail until the cows come home and you're not sinning according to that text. You can can be filled with sorrow and grief, overwhelming. You can be full of grief and express grief to your God and express grief to God and yet you're not sinning. You understand Jesus. Jesus, He was perfect, yet he was filled with sorrow, yet he was filled with grief, and he sometimes wept. He says, Paul said, Grieve, just don't grieve like those who have no hope. You know what I'm saying, Craig? I'm saying this. God sometimes delivers us from the fire, but a lot of times God delivers us through the fire. And when he delivers us through the fire, he causes that which was designed by the enemy to destroy us, to refine us, and burn off our bondage. And when you go through the fire, through the fire, not from the fire, you'll come out of it and God will judge the sin in your heart. He'll get rid of the bondage of your life. And whichever way he chooses, you've got to trust him. He can deliver. He has delivered and he yet will deliver again. He's a delivering God. He's a delivering God. We want to be overcomers with nothing to overcome. We want to be courageous with nothing to fear. We want to be loving with no catalyst to hate. We want to be servants with no jerks to serve. We want to be givers without our wallets involved. And Jesus is way too good to let us get away with it. So he puts us through the fire, and nothing can separate us from the love that holds us in being. No feelings in your life will ever bring you nearer to God. Did you hear me? You can't just because you feel closer to God today doesn't mean you are closer to God than you were yesterday. In the same way, no lack of feelings can ever take you away from God. If no feelings can take you to God, then no lack of feelings can take you away from God. What are you saying, Craig? I'm saying God is nearest to you when you are least aware of it. God is nearest to you. when When you don't have any perception of it. God is nearest to you. And you can't see your left from your right. And yes it's easy to trust God. When he does what we want. But it's the other times that we grow. It's the other times we grow. It's so easy to trust God. When he does what I want him to do. But I don't grow when he does what I want him to do. I grow when he does what I don't want him to do. I'm preaching to myself church. That's all I'm doing. You understand how this works? Number two, hope is a choice. Hope is a choice. What do you mean hope is a choice? Look at verse 18. I will rejoice. You hear that will language? Look at verse 16. I will wait patiently. That's a language of choice. That's not a language of feelings. That's a language of choice, which is why in the book of Philippians, Paul gives it a command. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say, Listen to me, church. Rejoicing is not a description of the feelings you have. It's a choice to posture your heart to what you know to be true, even when you don't feel it. That's what rejoicing is. It's a choice. Like I told you a few weeks ago, look, your feelings don't have brains. Did you know your feelings don't have a mind? You actually have to tell them how to feel. Look, 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 I know this is hard. But did you know you can't tell yourself to be happy? Because, because your emotions won't your emotions won't listen to. You. you know what you have to do? You have to what you what you have to do is you have to start explaining to yourself why you should be happy and why your emotions are lying to you. You have to keep doing that. Because they don't have a mind of their own. So you have to keep telling them what God's mind says. And if God's mind says that you should be happy because of this, 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 you keep telling yourself that you should be happy because of this, this, this. And you give them a mind of their own. You give them a mind of what Jesus has declared unto you in your situation. Why? Because faith possesses something in God that's so much deeper and better than anything else in life. And something more secure than anything death can take away. Listen to me. Luke chapter 10. You know what happened? The disciples come back. They cast out demons. They get pumped. They get excited. He had sent them out of ministry. They're excited. They have power over Satan. You know what Jesus does? By the way, for preachers, that's a big day. Can y'all listen to me? Preachers, we, we, we cast out demons. That's a big day. For you stockbrokers, a big day when you sell stock five times the ROI. For some of you, you real estate agents, when you close on five properties in a week. For us preachers, when we cast out a demon, that's our big day. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Why? Because there's going to be some days that the demons don't respond to you the way they respond in the last few days. Come on, I'm preaching better than you putting on. There's going to be some days when you don't cl- close on five properties in week, one week. There's going to be some days that you don't sell stock five times the ROI. So you know what that means? There's going to be some days the church won't grow. There's going to be some days the stocks won't come in. So rejoice who you, in who you are in me and what you have in me because those things never change. All he's saying is, it's not it's not bad to rejoice that demons submit. He just says, don't rejoice in anything that happens in your ministry. Rejoice in what you have in me, because that never changes. See, there's going to be things in ministry that will change. There's going to be things in your life that will change, but your security in me will never change. Number three, hope comes from remembering and repeating. It's the best thing I can give you today. That's the best thing I can give you. If you want hope, you're gonna to have to remember and repeat. 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 We've gotta learn what Habakkuk did here. We have to learn. He rehearsed the Exodus. Remember and repeat. Remember and repeat. The Bible never tells you anything once. It repeats over and over and over and over again. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then what does he do? He reviews the benefits of his salvation. He just said, don't forget it. Why is he reviewing it? Because you got to review it, and 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 you got to remember and repeat, and remember and repeat, and remember and repeat, and remember and repeat, and you wake up the next day, and remember and repeat, and remember and repeat. Preach the gospel to yourself. Your spiritual health will be directly determined by how often you review the The benefits of your salvation and the God behind it all. That's your spiritual health barometer. How often are you going to remember and repeat? How often? Listen, I don't flatter myself that any one sermon will sustain you for the rest of your life. I was so arrogant when I first started preaching. I used to think that. I used to think that I preached a good sermon and blasted people with a good sermon. I used to think, you know what? That's gonna, you're going to be set for life. I'm now 30, about to be 33 in a few weeks. I don't think that anymore. I think that this sermon right now might get you through this week. But then you're going to have to remember and repeat and review next week too. Sometimes I can't make it moments. I used to think I could make it weeks without His grace. Sometimes I can't make it moments. The older I get, I can't make it, I can't make it minutes. With that remembering, reviewing, and repeating, remembering, reviewing, and repeating, remember, reviewing, and re- when life saps you of your strength, you need to force yourself to remember and repeat. And you wrestle with God up on that mountain, up on that watchtower, like Habakkuk does, until he reveals himself and his glory to you, like he did to Habakkuk. You get up on the, that, that's why I love chapter 2, verse 10, is my favorite verse in this whole book, because you got to stand there with Habakkuk on the watchtower, and you got to say, I'm going to stay here until who you are and what you've done become real to me again. I know it. With my mind, but I need to feel it again in my heart, God. I know it in my mind, but I got to feel it again in my heart. And see, some of you, listen to me, this is why I weep for you. Some of you haven't really met with God in years, which is why your faith sags so much. You think something I'm going to say on Sunday is going to get you out of it. It won't get you out of it, folks. It's not any information I can give you that'll get you out of it. Listen to me. It's not any information the pastor Chad can say that'll get you out of it. You're going to have to get up on the watchtower and you're going to have to say, God, I'm not coming down off the watchtower until you t- touch my heart again. I'm not coming down until you wrestle with me. i will Will not let you go until you bless me. I know it in my mind, but I'm not getting down until you touch my heart again. Until I feel it in my heart again. Until I understand it. It's not information, God. It's not something I want to hear said. It's something I want to wrestle with. Which leads me to number four. The heights of hope come from the depths of faith. The heights of hope come from the depths of faith. Craig, did you make it up? No, verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer and he makes me tread on my high places. Listen to me, church. In ancient times, the summit was the safest place to be because you couldn't be attacked and you could see for miles in all directions. I'm a deer hunter. He said feet like the deer's means you're sure-footed. You ever seen one of those mountain deer? Suckers are nimble. They can move up, I mean, 90 degrees. Move up. I think they're out in an instant. Mature buck, you make one sound. He gets one whiff and he is out in an instant before you can get your gun up off of your tree stand. They can move across things. And he says, when I'm trying to walk across the same mountain, I'm staggering, breaking my legs. He says, when God becomes your strength or your joy, that's what you'll be like. You'll have a joy safely above whatever pain or disease or death or disappointment can destroy. And you won't stumble even in the toughest seasons of life. Oh yeah, you're going to get hurt maybe in the toughest seasons of life. Yes, you're going to get afflicted and you're going to get perplexed and you're going to get persecuted and you're going to feel like you're abandoned in seasons of life, but you will not stumble. You will make it through that season of life. And notice specifically that the new height of faith comes from having God himself as your joy. Can You put verse 19 up if you haven't. Rather than than him giving you things that bring you joy. Look, look, look. You can't miss this church. He does not say I'm going to give you things that bring joy. He does not say that. He said, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 18. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will not take joy from the God of my salvation. I will take joy... In the God of my salvation. Verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. God, God he gives me strength. He gives me strength is a whole lot different than God is my strength. And God gives me joy is a whole lot different than I take God or take joy in God. That's two different realities. This is when you have a faith that dwells on mountaintops. And like a deer's. And here's the thing church. This is where God wants to take every one of you. the only way it can happen is through trial. The only way this kind of joy can happen is through challenge. It's through trial. There are aspects of God you can only know when your fields are empty and there's no cattle in your stall, when your marriage is broken and you feel lonely and you're despaired. And you feel at the end of your rope. There's aspects of God you can only learn when you're at that season of life. I think of John chapter 11, Lazarus. Jesus intentionally waited three more days. He needed to raise his friend from the dead. Mary comes up and he says, If you would have been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus weeps with Mary. Why does he weep with Mary when 10 minutes later he's going to raise him from the dead? Why in the world would a Savior weep with Mary when 10 minutes later is this a drama? What's going on here? Jesus, why are you weeping with a lady when you're about to? To raise him from the dead 10 minutes from now. The reason is because when you love someone, you weep with them even when you know it's temporary. You weep with them even when you know it's a short season. And Mary got a glimpse into the heart of Jesus that Jesus is a compassionate crier. He's not only the God who raises the dead. He's not only the God who touches the blinded eye. He's the God who weeps when we weep. And she would have never gotten a glimpse that God is a weeping God if he wouldn't allow him to die. And when God allows something to happen in your life that dies is because He doesn't want you just to see Him as Resurrector. He wants you to see Him as the one who weeps with you when you're weeping. He wants to take you to a new level of the knowledge of Him. It's the most precious, valuable thing this side of eternity. The greatest thing that God can give you this side of eternity is the knowledge of who He is, to see the value of His presence in your life, to feel the constant warmth of His compassion towards you, and it will only come through trial. It will only come through difficulty. And that knowledge, Peter says, is more valuable than gold. It's better than any earthly answer to prayer. So he says, Rejoice when you go through trials that produce it While because trials produce the greatest thing on earth, and that's the knowledge of God. That's what trials produce. They produce the knowledge of God. And in Gene Vanier, he's a great German theologian I read. You know what he said? I got chills. I ran around my office. I read this this week. He proposes that Lazarus was profoundly disabled and handicapped. That's why Mary and Martha are unmarried and have to care for him even later on in life. And this makes Lazarus walking out of the tomb even more luminous than before. He just wasn't physically resurrected. He was physically healed. Whew. He walked out luminous. He walked out healed and whole. He walked out in the name of Jesus Christ. Whew. Come on, keys player. George Muller was a 19th century pastor who ran an orphanage. We're teaching him, and we're teaching about him right now in, uh, in homeschool with my son. We talked about George Mueller all this week. George Mueller was a man. He was a saint. And George Mueller was a pastor who ran an orphanage. He was famous for receiving stunning answers to prayer. I don't know if anybody through history has received more than answers, crazy answers. More than once, he would sit down with a 1,000 kids, and they had nothing to eat in the orphanage. And they prayed, and someone unknown to him would come and knock on the door. And as he was praying, they would show up with bread or milk, and they would say, We have bread today. We just... We just had more bread at the baker, and we thought that maybe somebody could use it here, and we came. And this happened thou—I mean, thousands of times. This is the way he lived his entire life. He never took a salary. And people would just show up miraculously in his life. This is how he ran his whole life. But in 1890, his wife contracted rheum- uh, rheumatic fever. And he went and laid hands on his wife, and he prayed earnestly for her healing, but she died. and She was only 57 years old. The last verse he read to her when she was drifting off into eternity was Psalm 84.11. He said, no good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And he and his wife had learned that the goodness of God in their life was better than life. And God's goodness went deeper than the pain of life. And was more abiding than the pleasures of life. And was deeper than rheumatic fever. And God's goodness was deeper than any disease and sickness. God's goodness was deeper. And that is what's happening in Habakkuk's faith. Which leads me to the fifth and final thing. Hope in the future leads to prayer in the present. When you have hope in the future, you pray in the present. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. the last text I'll read to you. Go back to this original text. Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you. In your work, oh Lord, do I fear? So look at what he says next. In the midst of the years, revive it, God. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You know what he's saying? If you just want to take in your Bible and put in the years, what he means is in my years, revive it, God. In other words, Habakkuk prays for an outpouring of God's mercy in his day. Oh, you listen to me. Habakkuk says, God, I know one day you're going to turn this all into all joy. I know one day you're going to bring us back from Babylonian captivity. But God, I know right now I want to see my generation included in that joy. God, in my years, I want to see that joy. God, in my situation, I want to see that joy. God, not just the hope in the future, but in my day, I want to see joy. I want to see joy unspeakable, full of glory. I want to see joy in my day, God. God, and so I'm. I'm crying out to you. In the midst of my day, pour out mercy, God. In the midst of my day, pour out your grace, God. Shouldn't we be doing that dwelling place, church? When I see God's goodness expressed at the cross, not only do I have faith to endure the trial, and and yes, that's important, but I yearn to see that goodness break out in our generation. I want to see Him do miracles in the lives of my friends. I want to see Him do miracles in the life of my kids. I want to see Him do miracles in the life of my church. I want to see Him do miracles in the life of our city. I want to see him doing miracles in the life of this generation of souls all around the world. I want to see him do miracles in this generation. I want to see him do miracles in this generation of church planters. I want to see him do miracles in raising up church planters with DP movement. I want to see him do miracles in the life of men in our church. I want to see him do miracles in the life of women in our church. I want to see him do miracles in the life of children in our church now in my day. In my day. In my day. Because you see. We have more reason for confidence than Habakkuk. Because ultimately the exodus was a picture of what Jesus would do for you. Yeah. Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the transfiguration. Moses and Jesus were talking about the exodus. Look, look, and God the Father said Moses was a dim shadow of Jesus so what Moses did partially Jesus would accomplish fully Moses merely risked his life to liberate Israel from bondage, Jesus gave his life to liberate us from sin and death, Moses only slew a lamb to spread its blood over the doorposts of Israel's houses Jesus himself was the lamb who was slain that his blood would cover our souls Moses established a system where priests represented people before God, going into God's presence daily with the names of Israel engraved on precious stones that was worn over their hearts, Jesus himself is our high priest. He's standing continually in God's presence on our behalf and he's got our names engraved on his heart. See, in the cross, I see his mercy. I see his heart. And that inspires me to great hope and great confidence and great prayer today. I got great expectations for him today. I got great expectations for Jesus today. Today. Where are you this morning? Where are you this morning? Do you need hope? You need to re-grasp God's goodness this morning? Do you need to pray for an in-breaking of the hope in the present? Do you need to God to answer? To help you endure with hope and pray right now? Do you know what crucifixion was? It was death by asphyxiation. The rulers of this world performed an act that tried to steal the very breath of God. And yet now today, the risen Christ breathes back His Holy Spirit into the world. And the wind blows wherever He wills. And He can into your situation today. He can... The resurrected Christ met the disciples outside the tomb and received the Holy Spirit. Fifty days later on the day of Pentecost, when they were gathered together in one place, the tongues of fire separated on each one of them as the Spirit of God gave the utterance and He... on top of their head. He can breathe life into your hopeless situation. The breath of God can fill your soul today. Whatever situation you're facing that seems so dire...